It was some years ago when I was given the assignment in seminary of looking at one verse and coming up with 50 questions to ask of that one verse. It was very early on in my seminary days, and the verse given was actually a verse from Ephesians, though that was not the point of the exercise necessarily. The professor could have set any verse in the Bible. He sent us away and said, think about this one verse this week, and next week I want a list of 50 questions concerning that one verse from each of you. And of course, to begin with, I looked at the verse and I came up with maybe two or three questions. And I realized my grade was at stake, so I kept pondering and some more questions came. Sure enough, as the week went on, question upon question upon question came to my mind that you could ask of this text. And it wasn't long before I had a list longer than 50 questions. And I would say that was maybe one of the most formative exercises that I ever did as a student in seminary. It taught me the value of asking good questions of the text. And it's only when you are willing to ask good questions of the text that you start to probe its meaning and its significance, the theological depth and the profundity of the text in view. Our one verse this evening prompts a very significant question immediately, and that would be, how do I bless God? How do I bless God? That is the question that arises immediately upon reading Ephesians 1 verse 3, because Paul says, blessed be God. Let him be blessed. Now, the verb of being there is not in the original text. It simply says, blessed God. And so one thing to consider is what did Paul intend for us to understand by that? There are at least three options. Either he is giving a command, an imperative, and saying, you are to bless God. To praise Him, to honor Him, to worship Him. It could be that Paul is softening that a little bit and issuing something of a, a wish. May God be blessed. May God be blessed in our lives. May we praise Him and so on. It could be that Paul is issuing a statement of fact. God is blessed. It's a statement of fact. God is blessed. People bless him with their words and with their thoughts, with their actions. God is blessed. All of those are valid. Most likely is that last option. Compared to other blessings or doxologies from the time that Paul was writing, it would seem that most likely what he intended for us to understand was that God is blessed as a fact. But if you ponder that reality very quickly issuing forth from the declaration of fact comes an exhortation, implied. If you ponder it for any length of time and you understand that a a principle that Paul is laying out is that God is blessed, you then start to reflect, well, is he blessed in my life? It becomes an implicit exhortation. However you read it, 
how am I to bless God? How do I ensure that in my life God is blessed? That is the foremost question that verse 3 of Ephesians 1 confronts us with. How do I bless God? The problem that we feel is perhaps created by virtue of the two people involved. On the one hand, we have God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. He is holy. He is sinless. He is perfect in all that he does. He is mighty. He's the creator of all things and the giver of all blessings. On the other side of the equation is me. On the other side of the equation is you. All too aware of our imperfections. All too aware of our frailties and our failings. Conscious to some degree of our sin. I remember reading C.S. Lewis speak about his sin continually overtaking him. He would strive with all of his might to put his pride to one side. He would think thoughts that were altogether directed to someone else. Namely, in this case, as he wrote, his students. He would ponder how he would be serving them as they would arrive in his office. And then he said, before a minute had passed, I caught myself congratulating myself for how good a professor I really was. He couldn't get away from his pride, and that is true of all of us. And so as we think about the question, how do I bless God? The difficulty arises as you consider who God is and who we are. The answer, wonderfully, is given to us by Paul in this verse. How do I bless God? Very simply, you bless God with your whole life by knowing how he has blessed you. The way in which you bless God begins with knowing how he has blessed you. You see, what Paul says is, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. He intentionally uses the same verb so as to to capture this reciprocal relationship. And the inference is, God has blessed us, and so we respond to that blessing by honoring Him. You cannot bless God until you understand that He has first blessed you. We talked about this last week in verse 2 of the epistle. Grace to you and peace from the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We appreciate before we appropriate the grace of God. We spoke about it as a roadmap for the whole letter. Before Paul gives us any commands, he tells us who we are. For three chapters, Paul labors simply our identity in the gospel. Because he understands that if that is not in place, any command that he might issue is meaningless in our lives. So it is the roadmap in Ephesians, and if I can extend out, this is the very fabric of the gospel found from Genesis through to Revelation. I want to labor this point this evening because it is so fundamental to the way you live your life. There are so many Christians who understand that they are saved by grace and grace alone. 
And every step they take thereafter along the path of sanctification pays zero heed to God's grace in their life and is 100% their striving apart from God's goodness. God intends for us to be saved by the gospel and continually sanctified by the gospel. We are to be saved by God's grace alone and we are to carry on in our dealings, in our strivings to obey his commands fueled by God's grace and not apart from it. So if you want to make any progress in the Christian life, you have to understand and call to mind over and over again, it is God that first blessed me. The only reason I am able to do anything and the only reason I desire to do anything is because God took the initiative to bless me. His blessing comes first and not mine. So how do I bless God? You know how he has blessed you. That is the starting point. Now with that being said, we might push back and say, well, okay, there's an awful lot of Christians who know in a very general sense that they are blessed. And there is seemingly no progress in their life in the reciprocal part of the relationship, them blessing God. I see this a lot. Wherever there would be something of a Christian subculture. There is one here in California. I know you maybe don't think it because you have perhaps grown up here and this state feels very liberal and very secular. Trust me, coming from Europe, which is far more advanced in its secularism, We arrive in California, and the Christian subculture that is here hit us in the face. It's a grace of God that it exists. It's not the same in many, many parts of Europe. To give thanks in a restaurant back in Europe attracts some strange looks in a way that it doesn't here, at least not yet. There exists something of a Christian subculture that brings problems. A lot of Christians blend into a model of life, a way of life that is acceptable. And their blessings from the Lord are very, very generic. They're not very articulated. There are other states that you can go into. I've been there. You go into a gas station. There is Christian music playing. And on the one hand, I think this is wonderful. On the other hand, I think it's very easy to exist here as a quote-unquote Christian. Faith is not being challenged in any real way, and so their, their faith, their understanding of the gospel starts to get very generic. Hashtag blessed. Blessed to do such and such. Blessed to be here today. And I always want to push back and say, just, just tell me what you mean by that. How do you understand that to be a blessing? How does that factor in your understanding of the gospel? And so, to expand upon the answer to the question, how do I bless God, what we might say a little bit more specifically is to give the principle that I think Paul gives us here, you bless God in so much as you understand the way in which he has blessed you. Your ability to bless God to live a life that honors Him, to praise Him as He should be praised is a direct result of the degree to which you understand how He has blessed you. 
if you understand God's blessings in your life in a very generic manner, you are not all that well equipped to bless him in return. If you have taken time to understand what the scriptures say about God's blessing in your life, you are now equipped to bless him in a way that the scriptures compel us to. Over the next few weeks, maybe months, we'll be tracing out Paul's blueprint for our blessings in Christ. Verse 3 through 14 is the longest sentence in Ephesians. It is one sentence. It is the second longest sentence in all of the New Testament. It is Paul not being able to contain himself as he tries to tell us how we have been blessed. And ours is the privilege to come on Sunday nights and simply to learn of our blessings. That's what the next few weeks entail. If there are folks here on a Sunday morning who are not coming in the evening that you know and have a friendship with, grab them by the arm and don't let them go. When you see them on a Sunday morning, you say, you're staying with me today. Why? Because I want you back in the evenings. Why? Because I want you to know how you have been blessed. In, in miniature format, Paul gives us that in verse 3. In miniature format. In the next few weeks and months, he'll unpack it for us. Tonight, we get just an expression of how it is we have been blessed and it equips us to bless God in return. So let's think through how we have been blessed in three parts because that's how Paul gives us the blessing. He gives us it in three parts according to the various prepositions in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. There are, are three points this evening. How is it that we have been blessed? Number one, we have been blessed in Christ. I want you to understand the preacher's experience week after week after week. This is me pleading for sympathy right now. A bit like that seminary assignment, the week begins with me looking at the text and wondering, what am I going to say next Sunday? The week carries on and, and things start to emerge by God's grace. Of course they do, because the text is so rich, any text. And so you start to realize there's a sermon here to be preached. By Saturday night, you are on your knees pleading with the Lord because you are overwhelmed by the richness of the text and you don't know how you can possibly communicate this to God's people. And I say that, I share that with you because perhaps this week, no more was it more true than then with these two words, in Christ. This is the capstone of Paul's theology. Everyone who writes on Pauline theology, would agree that the defining mark of Paul's thinking are these two words, in Christ, more than anything else. Some 180 times in his epistles, Paul writes, in Christ. It's as if this man can't go more than a few verses without saying, in Christ. It defines him, and he wants it to define us. It is Paul's summation of the Christian life. And so it shouldn't be a surprise to us that in verse 3 he says, how have you been blessed in Christ? So what does that mean? 
It is difficult to explain fully the notion of being in Christ. But simply put, it is the fact that in the, in the reality of the gospel in our lives, we have all been enveloped by the Lord Jesus. We've been wrapped up in Jesus Christ such that now there is not one part of our lives or our being that is apart from Christ. Everything that is true about us is true about us in Christ. There is nothing in our lives that is out with the domain of Christ. It's all in there. It's all been brought in there and wrapped up in our Savior. Now, that might sound very obvious to you. But just think about how we often behave. So often we come to church on a Sunday morning presenting our very best. We present our very best because we know God's people will be there and this is the day that we behave. We dress nicely, we say all the right things on a Sunday morning. On a Sunday morning, we say praise God. We do all the right things on a Sunday because the fear of man is real in us. We want to be accepted by these people, and so we behave a certain way on a Sunday, and yet should you be found on a Monday morning or a Wednesday evening or a Thursday lunchtime, an altogether different version of you is present. We behave differently depending on our circumstances. Paul says that is not true of you. God sees you 100% of the time enveloped by your Savior. And of course, it's not only the fear of man that, that causes us to behave in that way. It would also be the fact that we tend to divide the sacred from the secular. We often think of Sundays as a distinct day in the week, but for the wrong reasons. It is a special day. It is the Lord's Day. We get to set aside all other things and worship God with God's people. But shouldn't we be worshiping all the week long? As a Christian, our lives should be guided by the drumbeat of worship towards our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything we do should be informed by worship, and yet so often that is not the case. What Paul says is regardless of how you behave and how you think, God pronounces you 100%, 24-7 in your Savior. That is how you're found. And the reason that these blessings are true of you is for that very reason. If there were a part of the week where you weren't in Christ theologically, the blessings wouldn't be there. But the reason that they're always there is because you are always to be found in Christ. It is impossible for you to step out of the domain that is called Christ. And for that reason, all of these blessings belong to you all of the time. Amen. Whether you are mindful of them or not. On a Sunday, these blessings are yours. On a Monday morning when the alarm clock sounds far too early, these blessings are yours. When you drive to work, these blessings are yours. When you engage with the world, these blessings are yours. When you sin, these blessings are yours. They don't disappear when you sin. They're yours. Because 100% of the time you are in Christ. 
Now, how then does that inform our blessing of God? That's how he's blessed us. One of the ways that Paul gives us. He's blessed us in Christ. How does that inform our blessing of God? I would say it compels us to live out a 24-7 Christianity. That we be true to who we are. One way in which you can bless God with your whole life is strive to be who you are. Namely, someone who is in Christ all of the time. That you would put that on display for others to see that it would be true of you whenever you are found. Some years ago, a pastor gave me a list of questions that he called x-ray questions. He said, I want you to take these and walk through them every so often. And some of the questions on there were for Laura to answer and some were for my children to answer. I still have them and occasionally I'll pull one out and I'll just ask either Laura or the kids. And there were questions on there like, what is the most important thing to dad? I remember asking my kids that. I asked one of my children when they were maybe three or four, I was in seminary and I said, what do you think the most important thing to dad is? And I remember they said pretty quickly, coffee. I said, it's pretty important. (laughs) It's not the most important thing. Another question on that list that causes me to tremble. Is daddy the same person on a Sunday as he is the rest of the week? I've asked my kids, do you see me on a Sunday behave differently to how you see me behave for the rest of the week? One way you bless God is by living a Christian life all of the time. The second way in which God has blessed us that informs our blessing of Him is that He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. He blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. What does this mean? Paul is not marking the material blessings here as wrong. By saying every spiritual blessing, he's not saying, therefore, material blessings are wrong or inherently sinful. We do often get trapped into that way of thinking where anything that is material that we might count as a a goodness of the Lord towards us we're embarrassed by. We shun or we try to hide because we feel somehow it's inherently sinful. Paul is not saying that. Paul does not believe that. The Bible doesn't teach that. Material blessings are real. God does provide for us good things that can be seen and touched and experienced. We have to be careful that they don't become to us a snare, a means of sin, but they are not in and of themselves inherently sinful. Paul is not doing that by saying we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing, but what he is doing is elevating the spiritual blessings. He is elevating the spiritual blessings. They are spiritual because they are not seen, and they're spiritual because they're mediated by the Holy Spirit. 
The reason, I think, that Paul elevates them is because the spiritual blessings address a far greater need than the material blessings. What the material blessings do is meet a very temporary need. We feel it acutely because we're very physical people. But what the spiritual blessings do is address a far, far greater need. Namely, our sin before a holy God. Our distance from a holy God, having alienated ourselves from Him by our way of living. What the spiritual blessings do is address the trajectory that every sinner is on, namely towards eternal punishment in hell. You don't see these things with your eyes. You sometimes see the fruit of sin. You don't see in the bloodstream the DNA strand that says sinner. You don't see our alienation from God with your eyes in an everyday sense. The spiritual blessings are of much greater value because they address a far greater need. Think about it the other way. If I had come in this evening and had given you a check for an enormous amount of money, if I had blessed you monetarily, you would feel the benefits of that blessing for some time. Next Sunday, you would be back with a smile on your face, thanking me again and saying, we are benefiting so much from that gift. Perhaps in a year's time, you would find cause to still thank me because there's still some ongoing ramifications of that generosity. If the Lord were to allow you to live another hundred years, my guess is a hundred years from now, that gift would have no ongoing consequences in your life. The benefit would be spent. It'd be done. It was good in its, in its time, in its proper place, but it doesn't have an ongoing significance in your life, at least not beyond a few years. The spiritual blessings you have will resound 10,000 years from now. 10,000 years from now, the spiritual blessings that are yours this evening in Christ will still be felt by you. You will still be praising Christ for the gospel because of the blessings that came from it 10,000 years from now. And they won't have faded one bit. If not, they will have only enlarged in your estimation. Your appreciation of them will only grow as eternity progresses. What are those spiritual blessings? Paul tells us in verses 14, 4 through 14. He tells us that we have been chosen from before the foundation of the world. He tells us that we're holy and blameless before God because of Christ's sacrifice. He tells us that we've been adopted as sons and daughters of the living God, that our trespasses has been, have been forgiven, that we've received the Holy Spirit and been sealed with it as a guarantee of our one day inheritance. On and on the list goes. These are our spiritual blessings, and they are ours this evening in Christ. 
Now, how does that inform our blessing God? We bless God by knowing well how He has blessed us. So how does it help us to bless God knowing that we have every spiritual blessing? I would suggest that we bless God with our lives by having content hearts. Content hearts. Ponder that God has held back from you nothing. If we could go into heaven this evening and search out the storehouses of blessing, you wouldn't find a blessing there that God has not given to you. It wouldn't be the case that you could go into his storehouses of blessing this evening and find a blessing and say, God, you held this one back from me. That would not be our experience. He hasn't held back from you any spiritual blessing. God's word tells us you have every spiritual blessing. To put it another way, we sit here this evening as the richest people on the planet. Do you believe that? If you do, you live with content hearts. Grumbling, complaining is not a mark of the Christian life. Do not get wrapped up into the comparison game. It will kill you. Do not get wrapped up into the comparison game. Why did God give this person this thing and not me? Why did God give me this and not someone else? Don't do it. Your lot is your lot and God has given it to you and not somebody else. What I believe to be true is that God has given to others things that we could not bear and you actually don't want their lot as much as you think you do. You actually don't want their lot, though you lust after it. Don't get wrapped up into the comparison game. Trust that God knows what he's doing. As he has ordained your lot in life, meditate on the truth that you have every spiritual blessing. You lack nothing as it relates to your greatest needs. And for that reason, you bless God by being thoroughly content. The third way in which God has blessed us is in the heavenly places. God is the blesser and he has blessed us. How? In Christ, with every spiritual blessing, in the heavenly places. So how does this third part of the blueprint inform us as to how we bless God? When Paul says, in the heavenly places, he uses a word that is somewhat rare to talk about heaven. He had options, and there's a word that is far more common that he could have used to speak about the things above, and he chooses a slightly rarer word. And I think he does that for two reasons. One, if you remember the theological backdrop to the letter to the Ephesians was the occult, dark magic, dark practices. Anyone caught up in the occult would have spoken also of blessings. 
Maybe they wouldn't have used that word, but they would have spoken of being endued with power from the forces that govern them. And so I believe that as Paul uses this rare word to speak about the heavens, he's pointing at the very, very highest expression of the heavens. So as to make sure that anyone reading his letter who was, who was in Ephesus at that time, who understood the theological backdrop to the letter, was clear the blessings of which Paulus is speaking are not from anywhere but from the highest place, namely where God resides. He wants people to be abundantly clear on that matter. These blessings are not coming from any other force or authority. Secondly, and perhaps more prevalent in Paul's thinking, is the understanding that was wrapped up in the Old Testament and in Jewish thought that the heavenlies is a place that has a lock on it. If you read through the Old Testament, especially the prophets, and you take time to understand what the prophets said about the last day of salvation history, what you'll see is a persistent understanding that on the last day, the heavens will be unlocked. The Old Testament saint was genuinely saved by faith. There are those in Israel that were genuinely regenerate by faith. Same mechanism by which we're saved. But oh, how they longed for that last day. Because they understood that the manifold blessings of God were being held for them until then. The heavenlies in Jewish thought was a time, referenced a time when the heavens would be unlocked. Judgment would be poured out on those who had not put faith in God. And salvation blessings would issue forth to those who had. This is why the Old Testament speaks so often about waiting and hoping and waiting and hoping. What Paul says in verse 3 of chapter 1 to the Ephesians shifts the paradigm of salvation history. It is difficult to overstate just how much this would have challenged anyone who knew of Jewish thinking as it related to the heavenlies. Paul is saying, it's yours now. It has come to you now. Those blessings that you understand rightly to be in the heavenlies are possessed by you right now in Christ. He's changing the framework by which we understand salvation. We will get into this more as we work through Ephesians because Paul will go on to speak about the new covenant. This facet taps into new covenant theology. What Paul will say about the new covenant is that the old has passed. The Mosaic covenant is dead. There is a new ordinance, a new covenant by which we live. And one of the immense blessings of the new covenant is that all of those things for which you were waiting have been given to you right now. Now, some of them have been realized in part, not in their fullest sense. You will realize them fully on the last day of salvation history. Some of them have actually come to you in all of their fullness right now. 
We'll speak about it more as we come across it in the letter to the Ephesians. But understand this evening, when Paul says, in the heavenly places, he's saying, all that for which you were waiting has come to you and you possess it right now. It's yours in Christ. How does that inform our worship of God? How does it help us to bless him, I would say we bless God by being heavenly minded. If it is true that the heavenly things have come to us now in the gospel, in God's wisdom not being held back for the last day of salvation history, but in God's wisdom come to us now, oh, how heavenly minded we ought to be. We have tasted of heaven in the gospel. We have tasted of eternal things in Christ. They have not been set off for us to ponder and to wait for, but God has said, enjoy them now. We are to be heavenly creatures. We are here with a job to do. In God's wisdom, he hasn't called us home, but he wants us here right now on earth. And there are good things to give our efforts and our strengths to right before us. But we should go about them in a heavenly way. With a heavenly mindset. Which means you don't waste your time on silly, temporary things that don't benefit anyone to any real degree. We seem to be so caught up in this culture of entertainment and trivial things so that we live to be entertained. We have lost all sight of the mission that God has given us in order that we would be entertained as often as we can be. That is not a heavenly-minded attitude. That is not living in a heavenly way. We work, and we work in such a way that we have been informed by heavenly realities. It also means that you don't fear that which has only temporary consequences. We have no reason to fear the things that will not have a lasting effect. There is a lot around us that could cause fear in our hearts, And a heavenly mindset says, I refuse to fear these things. God has given me a taste of heaven in the gospel. One day very soon I'll be with Christ, so you will not cause me to fear. But I will fear God and I will bless him. How do you bless God who has blessed you? You bless him by having a heavenly mindset, by having a deep-seated contentedness, and by acknowledging that he has not held back any spiritual blessing. And so, with our lives, we seek to bless him in response. Let's pray to close. Father, we give you thanks for this one verse this evening that we have considered 
we understand the exhortation that naturally flows from it that we are to bless you. We are, in many senses, overwhelmed by that responsibility that, that we might be those who bless you. And yet the very fabric of the gospel informs us that because you have blessed us, we can now live our lives blessing you. As we understand that you have blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. Father, teach our hearts the profundity of these truths so that our blessing of you would be informed. It would be biblical and accurate and you would gain great praise from our lives. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.